So I'm looking at Mark 12, 13, and this is on Tuesday before the crucifixion on Friday. We're in Jerusalem, and it says, Then they, that'd be the religious leaders trying to find something to be mad at with Jesus, then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians, and the Pharisees and the Herodians didn't typically get along, but they have a common enemy in Jesus, uh, to Jesus in order to trap him in a statement which he'd make in public and they would use against him. So they came and said to him, Teacher, very respectful address there, even though they don't mean it, uh, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the, wor- the way of God in truth. Now here's a question. Are there any lies in the Bible, Phyllis? Yeah, accurately recorded lies, okay? They're lying when they say, we know, we believe you teach the way of God in truth. They don't believe that. But that's their public face so that all of the crowds can watch this and think they're totally objective. So we have a question. We, we don't know what to do here. We want to do the right thing. You're a good source. Tell us what you think. Is it lawful in God's eyes, lawful uh, to pay a poll tax to Caesar, to the Roman government that uh, has occupied Israel for almost 100 years at this point? Is it lawful in God's sight to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? I mean, aren't you subsidizing the Roman government? And uh, at that time, the, the Roman emperor's name was Tiberius. Uh, he reigned from uh, 17 to 34 A.D. And he was a pervert. He was a sexual uh, pariah. He was horrible. He's a terrible person morally, not that great of an administrator either. And so what's the dilemma here? I mean, we're standing in the shadow of the temple, and they want Jesus to say, well, yeah, we're supposed to pay the poll tax. And that makes him look like a traitor to his people and maybe even a blasphemer standing in front of the temple and saying we're going to send money to this sexual pervert. Or if he says, well, no, that's not lawful in light of all the Romans are and do, then the Romans who occupy, have they'll take those uh, that data, the leaders will take that data to the Romans and say you need to, to uh, prosecute him kind of thing. So they're trying to paint him in a corner. Now, this is a, this is a classic example of uh, a situation that sets you up to fall prey, P-R-E-Y, to the fallacy of the excluded middle or the apparent dilemma. So a lot of times to make train you how to think around that kind of thing, I will say, hey, uh, Deborah Smith, is Jesus the son of God or is Jesus the son of man? And as a good thinker, you're going to say he's both, right? Now I phrase that to act like you've got to pick one or the other. But quite often the truth's in the middle and that's the way the Lord plays this because it's the right thing to do, but they, his enemies never anticipated it. So are we supposed to live up to our responsibilities to human government, even a human government we didn't vote for? Or are we supposed to be, just supposed to focus on the stuff of God and just disregard our responsibilities uh, in that realm of human government? Uh, so he says, uh, shall we pay or shall or they say, shall we pay or not pay? But he, Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, he knows that they're coming with a false premise, said to him, why are you testing me again? They've been doing this the whole week so far. Bring me a denarius to look at. And when they would have brought him that Roman coin, he would have been looking at Tiberius's bust just to, from the neck up. And everybody knew that he had this thing for little boys, which was horrific. Uh, so they bring him one. And he says, whose likeness and inscription is this on this Roman coin that we use uh, you know, to buy and sell things. And they said, Caesar, Tiberius Caesar. And Jesus said to them, okay, here's your answer. 
Render to Caesar the thing, things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed. He, he slipped out of their trap by telling them the truth. Now, with that ringing in your ears, let's go back to First Peter now, as we continue our study. And we're in a section now that emphasizes submission. We're going to get to the, the, the tough part of the book, because it's all about submission, which none of us like to do, and it's all about suffering, which none of us like to have to deal with. And yet, these are important parts of everyone's Christian lives. And here we read in 1 Peter 2, 13-17, uh, Submit yourselves, if you're a believer, Ken Wanzer or David Stribling, just put your name in the blank. David Stribling, submit yourself for the Lord's sake. So that's very important. To every human institution. And we're not talking about the YMCA here. We're talking about Sonia government institutions as the context makes clear. What do you mean by that, Peter? Well, whether to a king or a president or a prime minister, or whatever the title is, as to one who's in authority over you, or to those who work under him, to governors. Now, for us, governor is a very specific term, right? Uh, the governor is kind of the president of the 50, each of the 50 states. But that's a term that's more generic. This means anybody in government that works under the the bigger guy, the king or those who work under him, as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers in the presence of those who do right. For such is the will of God, submitting for the Lord's sake. So there can be exceptions to every human institution, not just to democratically elected leaders, but even uh, horrific human emperors like uh, Tiberius. Um, for such is the will of God, that in general you submit to them, and that you're uh, tax-paying, uh, law-abiding, good citizens as a Christian, that by doing the right thing in an area like this, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men who think we're repressive and dangerous. Act as free men. We're talking about paradoxes, Kitty. Uh, we're told to submit. In fact, we're commanded to submit, verse 13. Then he tells you you're free in Christ. You're a free person. How does that, how does that square? Have you ever thought about that, Clay? We're, we're, we're called to freedom in Christ, but we're supposed to submit to all these different different areas we're told to in Scripture. We'll talk about that today. And do not use your freedom as a covering for evil or as a pretext just to promote your own agenda and your convenience, but use it as bond slaves of God first and then as good citizens and good church members and good students and good athletes on the sports team and good uh, conscientious members of your neighborhood. Uh, secondly, Bottom line, honor all people, regardless of color or culture, uh, social economic standing. Honor all people. They have the image of God marred, but still there. Love the brotherhood. Have a special focus on fellow believers, especially in your local church. Fear God, not abject fear, but uh, reverential awe and respect. Honor even the king, or in this case it's Tiberius. So today... Um, we're going to talk about submission. We're going to enter this section of the book all about submission. And this is not a natural impulse for any of us in our sin nature. We like to be supervisors, not submitters. But it's a very important part of our Christian life. Um, and I think one thing we're going to see in this portion of the book, uh, Dr. Digg, is submission is not about weakness and defeat. It's really about spiritual strength and victory. And that's why... I, have titled this, uh, Submission Isn't for Spiritual Sissies, or Only the Truly Strong Truly Choose to Submit. Okay, So that's where we're going today as we think about how should James and, and Lori and Ron 
think about and relate to the human government, whether it's George W. Bush or Barack Obama or Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton or uh, anybody else who's at the top of that pyramid, okay? So let's pray uh, for teachability, and as we always like to do, pray for those who protect and serve us, our firefighters, peace officers, and our active military, okay? Father, we thank you for this beautiful day, beautiful weather, beautiful facility, beautiful hearts to gather together uh, on the first day of this new week you're giving us, which we realize is a gift. We did nothing to earn it. And the first significant thing, other than feeding the twins breakfast this morning, uh, that we're doing this morning on the first day of the week is to get together with believers of like mind and practice to celebrate the resurrection, to worship, uh, to fellowship, to pray and study your word. And we know there are similar congregations all over this town and all over this uh, county and state and nation and region and world uh, that are doing exactly the same thing. And we pray that uh, you would empower us uh, to uh, process this portion of God's word, your word, not just as information, but as transforming truth, and that you would do spiritual heart surgery on all of us to help us understand and get a grip on and be more committed to submission, to us submitting freely to your authority and to the authority of others around us that uh, we're under uh, in uh, kind of the chain of command of the different uh, dynamics we're involved in every day. Uh, I know some people here this morning are uh, facing some special issues this coming week, and I pray for courage for them and grace for them. I know Gene's uh, going to have a knee replacement on Wednesday. I want to pray for that already. Uh, I want to pray for those who are on the road I know that Zane and, and Blanche are on the road coming back this way, and several others are out of pocket this weekend, so we pray for them. And a couple are ill, so we pray for those as well. Uh, we thank you, Father, for this time now, and please let your Holy Spirit, who inspired this text and how you've providentially pre- preserved it, please make it come alive in our hearts that we might embrace it and live it out to the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Okay, well, you know what? I got a confession to make. Uh, here we are, beginning of May. Is that possible? I mean, seriously. So we've had four months already in this new year, so we're a third of the way uh, through the year. And I don't usually like to share these with you, but uh, you know, I, I make New Year's resolutions every year. And uh, this year I'm making practically no progress on them. And I've just made a whole lot of uh, resolutions. But these are the three that I'm most embarrassed about that I have not been able to achieve thus far. So uh, let me talk about my three New Year's resolutions four-plus months later, January, February, March, April. Uh, to inspire me to strive for greatness in ministry, my resolution was I will invest the time and the money needed to get a large tattoo of James Mitchell printed on my forehead. I thought that way every morning when I woke up and shaved, I could look at James, I could be motivated for greatness. So, but I haven't got, I haven't done that yet. Uh, number two, I will start buying my lottery tickets at luckier convenience stores because it did, it hasn't been working for me. So I, obviously, I'm not going to the lucky convenience stores yet. And finally, and that says two, but it should say one. Uh, I will hit the weights super hard to achieve my ultimate dream of becoming the. Uh, 2017, Mr. Oklahoma, Super Senior Division. 
Yeah, and so so far I haven't made much progress on any of that, but I'm hoping, and you can pray for me in that area. Okay, uh, we're working our way through Second Peter, and this is really important because uh, we're at a hinge point in the book. Last week we talked about the purpose statement, and we're going to think of the purpose statement as kind of the overarching idea that he's trying to teach us here. And that purpose statement is, and this applies to every believer in this room today too, as spiritual aliens, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. Short timers, even if you live to be 150, that's a very short period of time. As spiritual aliens and short timers on earth, Christians, Sonia Skinner and Sharon Bearden, should not be controlled by our emotions and our feelings, but we should constantly, consistently live our life and our faith-centered on Jesus Christ, so that unbelievers who slander us because we're believers and we're backward and repressive uh, will see the reality of Christ in our lives, and you got to love him. You don't have to love Brad McCoy very much, but you got to love the Lord Jesus Christ. And ultimately, come to, fa- come to faith Excuse me, and glorify God by coming to Christ in faith. If you want to boil that down, uh, I think the book is saying, trust and obey the Lord now, as temporary duty, TDY, temporary duty exiles on earth, encouraged by our joyous anticipation of being at home someday, soon, with our risen Lord Jesus Christ for eternity. Or to make it even more practical, this is telling Michael Birch and Clay Ward, keep on trusting and obeying the Lord, even when you find yourself in situations when it doesn't seem to be any reason left to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord. That's what the book is saying at a practical level. But if you go back to the structure, you know, under that purpose statement, we kind of had two parts. I called it Faith Under Fire 101, Faith Under Fire 102. We're moving from the first one, which kind of was a primer on basic Christian faith and Christian works, belief and behavior. Now, Linda, we're moving to 102. We're moving to the next level of instruction He's going to talk about the importance of submission, regardless of our circumstances, and the fact we are going to face suffering in this world. Everybody does. There's no way around it. Okay, So let's think in those terms, and we're going to be thinking about submission today. We're thinking about the fact that believers should voluntarily submit to government rulers and leaders. And we're going to see a command, a principle, and an application, or if you want to uh, elaborate a little bit. You've got that uh, data, but let's look at that first part. Believers, Sue Smith-Raska is to voluntarily submit to government rulers slash leaders. Look at verse 13 and 14 again. He says, submit yourselves. That's just an imperative. It's just a command. That doesn't say if you feel like it or if you don't mind. Just, this is an order. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake. And Carol, that's really important to see that prepositional phrase. The longer I study the Bible, the more I realize it's all about the prepositional phrases. Everybody can find the subjects and the verbs, but it's hard to do the prepositional phrases. We're talking about relationships. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake in the sphere of your Christian faith as an expression of your Christian faith to every government human institution, whether to kings or those who work for kings and sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. Ideally, that's what they're supposed to do and the praise of those who do right. This is a general imperative with implied exceptions. Because, hey, Amber, when the Word of God tells you to obey the government, you know what it means, basically? It means to obey the government. However, the principle is always submit and respond to human authority 
until or unless it is a direct sin to submit and obey human authority, right? So the same Apostle Peter that we're getting to know better every week now as we interact with his epistle here that tells us just as a general statement, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human government institution, back in Acts 5, looks at government leaders and says, sorry, we can't do that. In Acts 5, Peter and the apostles are arrested for preaching Christ. They'd already been arrested, Peter and John, uh, in chapter 4, and told, we're not going to do anything this one time, but don't tell anybody about this Jesus person anymore. And on the way out the door, Peter says, we can't do that. So they go out there. All the apostles are, um, are active. They all get arrested, and they're basically told, we've warned you about this. Now you're going to be in big trouble. And Peter famously says, I think with respect, but with no hint of backup, he says, we've got to obey God rather than man. You know, we're not saying when the, uh, the goon squad comes and tells you to round up the Jews or the homosexuals or the people over 64 that believe in the Bible and let's put them in concentration camps or kill them and tor- torture them to death. Uh, you can't do that. You're going to have to say, sorry, sir, I can't do that. Now, for me and James, you know, uh, we come to church almost every day, okay? And uh, whether we want to or not. And uh, for a lot of times, this is not so much for James anymore based on where he lives now, but, you know, the stretch of, uh, of a road from uh, the intersection of Country Club and Plato, if you can picture that, where Plato School is, and if you come east uh, toward where Roy, Roy's Market is, you know, that stretch of road is what is known as a speed trap. Am I right, my friend? What's the speed limit there? You remember, James? It's 30 miles an hour. That is artificially low, okay? Uh, and frankly, you know, uh, I can get very righteous, in, righteously indignant at such, you know, in, uh, injustices in the world. I mean, can't you? Because, I mean, you could easily drive 35 or 40 and not be a threat to anyone. Uh, but there's at least one person in the room who was unaware of the fact it was only 30 miles an hour. And it wasn't me, but, you know, James didn't... Ch- yeah. 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 But my, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to play with James, but he, he mentioned that to me this week. And uh, actually, I, I didn't realize it was 30. And I drive that stretch every day the way I come to, to church most of the time. And uh, I didn't tell you this, James, but I did get pulled over once and was given a warning, probably because I look more spiritual than you do. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I could have got a ticket also. But I, I can remember uh, when uh, Jimmy Carter decided uh, he was going to make the speed limit 55 miles an hour uh, because of the uh, oil shortage, because we were, you know, the embargo from the OPEC nations. And I can remember we were living in Houston at the time. I think I was at dental school at the time. And I can remember as a very idealistic uh, 24-year-old kid, I thought, you know, I wasn't crazy about lowering the speed limit, but I thought this is so incredible because uh, the night before it went into effect, it was a big deal in the local news because, you know, Houston, everybody drives like maniacs. And I thought, this is going to be amazing, you know. The president signed this sheet of paper, and tomorrow, rather than on 610, which was the outer loop then, you know, it's a lot bigger loop now, but uh, to get to dental school, you know, usually people are driving... You know, it's, it's 70 mile an hour speed limit. Everybody's going about 80. But I thought, now that he signed that paper, everybody's going to be driving 55 and smiling and waving at each other. And so I got up on the, the freeway that morning just thinking everybody's going to be driving 55. And you know what they were doing? They are doing the exact same stuff they did the day before. Just the fact that somebody signed a sheet of paper. 
And I even heard Christians saying, you know, uh, if God wanted us to drive only 55, he would have given us mopeds. No, he didn't say that. But, I mean, you had some Christians indignant that that was, you know, an indignity beyond the pale, you know. But this is just saying Christians ought to pay our taxes. We ought to drive the speed limit. We ought to come to a complete stop at stop signs. Do you you always do that? I don't, but uh, I'm convicted when I think about it when I don't. But this is just saying Christians should be model examples of good citizens, um, as he says, for the Lord's sake. It's an important part of our testimony. However, we are not to worship the government. And there are certain issues in this country that will not be solved by government. Most of the social issues right now are because of a breakdown in Judeo-Christian morality especially intact homes with mommy and daddy who have the kids, who love each other and take care of the kids. And the government uh, can subsidize other stuff, but it can't produce that kind of thing. But here's what the government can do. Notice he says, submit yourselves as Christians, even if the people in charge aren't Christians, and Tiberius wasn't a Christian sitting in Rome, to every legitimate government institution, whether it's the guy at the top or all the people work for him, as sent by God providentially for the punishment of evildoers like murderers and rapists and uh, robbers and stuff like that, and for the praise of those who do right. Uh, you know, government can't produce virtue, but it can constrain evil, okay? And uh, when you hear the phrase law and order is considered to be hate speech, we got a problem because you've got certain rules that we all have to obey we're going to talk about how freedom and rules interact in a minute. But uh, very important for us to hear this now because, I mean, for the past eight years, the federal government has done stuff like trying to put the little sisters of the poor out of business because they didn't feel like they should use their facilities to, to do abortions. I mean, the federal government was trying to put these people out of business. Talk about an absurd world. And they did what they had every right to do, take them to court and try to work it out. And uh, some good things happened this last week on that area. Some of us thought it wasn't enough, but uh, we'll see. But uh, a lot of times we tend to think, well, I don't like the president. I didn't vote for the president, so I don't have to uh, submit to the president. Well, yeah, you're supposed to, whether it's a Republican or Democrat, a liberal or conservative. I will say this. When you look at the aftermath of the last election, whether you like the results or not, whether you support President Trump or not, uh, there have been a lot of, shall we say, violent protests against him and his ideas. Uh, I don't remember the little sisters of the poor uh, turning cars over, setting things on fire, smashing store windows, trying to hurt and kill people because the government was trying to force them to do abortions. Do you remember any of those kind of demonstrations by the Catholic nuns or the Methodists or the Presbyterians? No. Their version of civil disobedience looks a lot different than ours. There may well be times when we must civilly disobey the government, but we should do it civilly. We should respect, we should do uh, what Jesus did, nonviolent civil opposition. But uh, when you read a verse like that, realize you've got a general principle with implied, understood potential exceptions. But most of the stuff we tend to not want to do, like complete come to complete stop, stop signs or whatever, uh, isn't an issue. We need to do the right thing the right way. So in general, that's the command, right? Now, another neat passage on this, this is not the only place the Bible talks about how Sue should think about government, how Danny should respond to human government, including city, you know, regional, state, federal, etc. Uh, 
Mark 12 we looked at. Certainly Romans 13 is very famous. But 2 Timothy 2 says this, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, including Tiberius in Rome, or in this case of Nero at Rome when he's writing First Peter or First Timothy uh, in First Peter, and for all those in authority, talking about in your government, even if they're not Christians. Uh, why? Because, as Peter said, he said, look, really the purpose that God uses providential for government is for the punishment of evildoers, to have some kind of constraint on that, and hopefully to promote people who do the right thing. Uh, and here Paul says something very similar. Let's pray for these people so that the government they're in charge of can promote and allow us to live peaceful, quiet lives in godliness and holiness so the gospel can be lived out with a minimal of fuss and bother. They're still going to offend people. This is good and pleases God our Savior wants all men to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. So the scripture consistently tells us to submit to human government However, we've got to civilly say no when it's a sin to. So you see Daniel and his friends, are they they go to Babylon. They are trained to work for the pagan government. However, in a couple of situations where they're pushed to the limit, where obeying the human government would have been to deny uh, the things of God directly, they had to respectfully say no, and God helped them, right? So that's that's important. Now, the the rub here. The elephant in the room is, what does submit mean exactly? And I don't really want to have to do that to my government or to my husband or to uh, uh, my coaches or to the elders of this church or whatever it is that you're having trouble with in that area. Well, let's think about that for a minute. And uh, let me show you two of the three principles I want to stress on submission today. First, the, the term for submission in the original is hupa tasso. Hupa means under, tasso means to throw or to place. And so kind of at its root, at, at, at the etymology of the word just means the place under. When I'm submit, submitting to uh, uh, Dr. Lance Janda, who's one of my department chairs at Cameron University, I'm putting myself under his authority. He's not forcing me to. He's not putting a gun in my head. Uh, but we've had some some new uh, rules in another department uh, last semester. We were told to save money. We should not print out syllabi. To incoming freshmen in the fall because it costs too much money and they can access it on Blackboard and on the computer. And I didn't like that, but I followed the the order and I think they actually rescinded it. And I kind of thought, you know what? You've got all these first-year freshmen. They're just out of high school. This is August, September of last year. And we're going to start a class and then they're going to go home and mommy and daddy are going to say, how'd, how'd class go? Fine. Where's your syllabus? Oh, they didn't give us a syllabus. Why not? They can't afford it. I didn't. You know, it's going, going to freak people out. So I thought that was kind of a dumb rule, but that's the kind of thing you do. You know, you submit to human authorities figures. So you put yourself under. Now, principle one, and I'm going to bang away at this. I'm convinced that Christian submission is an expression of strength. It's not something forced. Uh, it's something that you do as an expression of your strength. It's freely chosen. Number two, and it can't be forced. It's not an abject groveling. It's not giving up your self-respect. It's not giving up your personal autonomy. Whatever the government tells me to do, I've got to do. I'm a robot. Whatever my uh, chair at Cameron tells me I've got to do, I'm, I'm a robot. got to just do it, just salute, ask them how high. It doesn't imply inferiority either. Look at uh, Philippians 2 real quick. You know, Philippians 2, as most of you know, is this. It's called the kenosis, the giving up, the emptying passage where Jesus gave up. 
uh, in his incarnation coming to earth, the uh, expression of his divine attributes. He didn't give up his attributes. He gave up the expression, the independent expression of his divine attributes. And so, uh, Steve, as, you know, as Paul likes to do, he teaches doctrine always to reinforce practical concepts. And so the passage is Philippians, 5, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. But for context and see how this works practically, uh, look at verse 3, Philippians 2, 3. Very practically, he's saying to Eric Ward or to Brad McCoy, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind as you live your life and seek to serve others, whether you're over them on the chain of command or under them, regard one another as more important than yourself. I mean, look out for them, uh, not just for yourself. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests. Also look for the, out for the interests of others. Factor that in. And then here comes the theology, Steve. In other words, have the attitude Jesus had, who although he existed outwardly as the second person of the Trinity, did not regard that kind of positional equality and expression of his deity a thing to be grasped. He was willing to empty himself of the independent use of his divine attributes. He veiled his glory, taking on the outward form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of a human being, and being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself even more by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So nobody who understands the Bible would say that Jesus is inferior to God the Father, right? We, we have this thing we call the Trinity, which describes God as one with three persons, co-equal, co-eternal, right, Stan? So there's three persons in the Trinity, but they're all co-equal, co-eternal. There's no inferiority there. But they have different roles. Go back to First Peter. Uh, when we say that submitting is not necessarily uh, implying that you're inferior to the person you're submitting to. Uh, that passage is very, very important. Jesus is not inferior to God the Father, but definitely his willingness to take the role as the active agent salvation. Uh, that shows amazing spiritual strength, which is exactly why Paul says in Colossians, Jesus needs to be the center of the Christian church. It doesn't hurt God the Father or God the Holy Spirit for us to focus on Jesus, okay, without denying them, of course. So we're, that's our basic command. Now let's move to the principle in verse uh, 15. By doing the will of God in this area, Christians can silence all kinds of illegitimate critique against Christianity. Look at verse 15. For this is the will of God. What's the will of God? That we submit ourselves for the Lord's sake, to every human government institution, until or unless it's a direct sin to. That's implied but not expressed. But this is the will of God. It's for Clay, uh, it's for Eric, it's for Ray, it's for Henry, it's for all of us, the whole family. That by doing the right thing here, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men who want to act like we're dangerous. Now that sounds awful, awful lot to me like the pr- uh, purpose statement, doesn't it, Steve? That by doing the right thing, we might silence the ignorance of foolish men. What does that purpose statement say? As spiritual aliens, short-timers on earth, let's do the right thing so that unbelievers who slander us because of our faith may see the reality of Christ in our lives and have a whole different attitude, maybe even come to faith themselves. So that purpose statement is being acted out and played out in everything he's saying here. But go back to verse 15. Submitting to human authority, being good citizens uh, of our nation, our state, our city, is the will of God for us, and it can allow us to silence those who might otherwise not take our faith, might not take Christianity very seriously. 
Now let's think about the will of God here. Now, you know, this is why we train you to be able to think for like 12 minutes without stopping, even though I know it's just six and a half minutes between primetime television commercials, so the whole culture is designing you not to think for, unless it's got explosions or something. Uh, but let's talk about the will of God for a minute. We've done this before, and some of you have seen this before. But, you know, people sometimes, when something really bad happens, they say, can this be the will of God? And, you know, that that's a complicated question. And I want to deal with that uh, without doing any uh, variance to the text, okay? Uh, why, is that such a de- why is that such a complicated question? I think the reason that thinking about the will of God is complicated is because God's pretty complicated. In fact, God is incomprehensible. You learn that in seminary. And the first thing you learn is you can't really understand any of this stuff. Okay, that's number one. Number two, we can understand truly, we can never understand wholly about God completely. Okay, you kind of start with a certain amount of, of uh, humility there. But, you know, we break down the attributes of God, and we talk about that. And it's very important to be able to think through God's basic character, especially because a lot of times we can't trace his hand, can we, Sonia? But when you can't trace his hand, what are you supposed to do? Trust his heart. And if you don't know what his character is, it's hard to trust his heart, because sometimes the circumstances you're in are horrific, and you don't see any light at all. But let me start this very practically. Let me ask you a question. Let's, I'm going to show you a hypothetical headline uh, that is horrific. And let me ask you, is this the will of God or not, this event? I know this happened in Egypt just a few weeks ago, Palm Sunday. But let's project forward. I've been to Jordan, several different parts of it. I can picture the people and the situation there. Al-Qaeda bombs churches in Jordan, comma, hundreds killed and wounded. Okay, let's pretend like that event happened. I hope it doesn't. But let's pretend like it happened. Uh, and you call your pastor and you say, is that the will of God? What am I supposed to say to you? You know, I have to say yes and no. Now, how can I say both? I almost sound like a politician there, don't I? Uh, I voted for it before I voted against it. Remember that? Let's go through the aspects of the will of God, then we'll come back to that question, okay? Uh, yeah, there are, certain, there are at least five aspects of God's will, and these labels aren't as hard as they look. Let's start with the first one and the last one, which really kind of work as twins. The first type of the will of God, anytime you see this is the will of God, you've got to ask yourself, which of the five are we talking about here? You've got the sovereign, the eternal, the decretive will of God. That's God's plan from all eternity. It's uh, what he wants. I think it's important, Phyllis, that you understand, especially when you're dealing with some issues like you're dealing with, that God has a plan, he didn't consult you about the plan, he's not going to consult you about the plan, and he's happy with the plan, not necessarily with all aspects of the way it works out, but the way it ultimately ends out. He's very happy. It's the best way to the best of all possible worlds. So that's God's will in the sense that everything that happens is part of God's plan. I mean, your only other option is, well, stuff happens that wasn't God's plan. He's just going, oops, you know what, I didn't know that was going to happen. Whoops, you know. I wish people would pray to me harder, or maybe I would have seen it. You know, uh, he, he, there's no surprises for God. He knows everything because he's got a plan. Okay, but that goes back to eternity past, and it's called the decree of God, the creative will of God. But when we say God's sovereign, we're saying He's got a plan, and He knows what's going to happen in the plan, and it includes not just the elements of the universe, but all the events of history. Okay, now in time, we see that worked out in what theologians call the providential will of God. Okay. So that 
the fact that James just happened to mention uh, with no prompting on my part when we did a rolling staff meeting on Thursday that he'd once got had to go because he lives right three doors down from a judge, right? And as we he had forgot something, so we went to his house to get the thing. We pulled back and uh, Brent Russell's the judge's name, and he actually likes me. I don't think he likes you, but. Uh, uh, I said, hey, have you gotten another judge very much? And he says, yeah, and the funny thing is, one time I had to go to, and I said, oh, really? So that was the providential will of God, to give me some gist for the message today. So, you know, that wasn't a, that wasn't an accident, that actually happened for, for a reason. But those are the heavily theological aspects of the will of God. The real practical stuff is in the middle, and let's focus on those. The preceptive, the permissive, and the directive. What's that? The preceptive will of God are just the commands of Scripture, the precepts of Scripture. What is the will of God preceptively about murder? Don't do it. What is the will of God preceptively about telling lies? Don't do it. Uh, you can go on. Just direct commandments. Thou shalt not or thou shalt. You know, love the, oh, here's one. Uh, honor all people. Not even Haitians, you know. These people love Haitians. That's kind of a supernatural love there in it. Uh, I can remember 14 years ago, I used to love college students. Just love college students. Uh, I'm not sure I can always say that anymore. It's harder. You know, you get to know them. You know, everybody's normal until you get to know them. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Those are precepts too, okay? So the precept of will of God would be what God wants us to do consistent with his character as expressed in his word, okay? Uh, so guess what? I'm going to give away the story here. But in verse 15, this is the will of God. It means this is the perceptive will of God. What God wants you to do, Joe, is to submit, and you got to do that. you got to choose to do that. They can't force you to do that. That's coercion. Uh, submit to human authority. Permissive will of God. What's that? Okay, the perceptive will of God is thou shalt not commit murder. Do murders ever happen in real life? Tragically, they do. I mean, every day people get murdered. Well, uh, is that part of the decretive will of God? Yeah. Even the sinful things that happen are part of God's decrees. He's got a plan that makes, that sets that, it's gonna, those things are gonna happen. Uh, but when somebody murders someone, is that a violation of the preceptive will of God? What is the pre, what is the precept about murder? Don't do it. So if you do it, you've violated that. The fact that God permits violations of his perceptive will means you ain't a robot. You're making real choices. Well, where did evil come from? If God's responsible for everything, he created evil. No, he didn't. He created the power of choice, which is a good thing, in angels and anthropoi, and heavenly hosts and human beings. I've been a speech teacher too long. This alliteration will get you in lots of trouble. But he gave Adam and Eve, and he gives you uh, a, a volition. He gives you the power of moral choice. And if you're going to do that, I mean, God could have designed a world where every time an atheist picks up a pen to write an atheistic thought, the pen blows up, okay? Every time somebody wants to stab somebody and kill somebody and murder somebody, then the knife turns into rubber and it tickles them, you know? But if you do that, you have an irrational universe. In order to have a universe where people are making real choices and where you've got a real chance for creatures to love God, you have to give them a good thing, the power of choice, and you have to allow bad choices to happen, and the fallout to happen, at least for a while. Now, if God's all-powerful, he can defeat this thing. If he's all-loving, he would want to. He hadn't done it yet, so he's not done yet. But when he's done, he's going to get us to the perfect world. But we're not then 
there yet. We're not there yet. Preceptive will of God is what preceptively what God commands us to do. Permissive will are the things that God permits us to do that violates his moral will. And then the directive will of God is what people call the perfect will of God in your life. And it's not really a point act. It's really an area. But it's what God wants Michael and Amanda to do as a married couple they couldn't do by themselves. Consistent with his preceptive will and consistent with their gifts, responsibilities, and wisdom. And praise God, they were wise enough to come back to Oklahoma. Okay? So good things can happen when people work out the directive will. Now, it's important to notice that when you look at the permissive will of God, where God permits adultery and murder and and child molestation and abortions and all that kind of horrible stuff, uh, that we don't blame God as the morally responsible cause of anything that's evil. Okay, God's the ultimate cause of everything, like the Ford Motor Company is the ultimate cause for all the wrecks that involve Ford vehicles, but he's not the morally responsible cause for somebody who recklessly is texting and driving and runs over a little kid. That's just very, very reckless, selfish stupidity. Uh, Before I got a smartphone, I thought, there's no way I would ever text and drive at the same time and I've done it, but I just heard a very convicting speech a couple of weeks ago from one of those college students I actually like that pointed out you're four times more likely to get in a wreck. You're more likely to get in a wreck if you're texting and driving than if you're intoxicated. So that's that that got my 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 uh, my my attention. But it's very important not to say, oh, "Well, God's in charge of everything, and the ultimate cause, He's the bad guy too." No, uh, James says, "Don't blame God for sin. That's your problem." You did that. But the way he's created the universe means it can happen, and it does happen. Now, the analogy I like to use is, you know, think of your life as a Christian, Michael Burtz's life as a Christian, as an uh, uh, easel with a big piece of canvas, and he, and that's, that's Michael's life. And then God gives him this uh, array of paints and a brush, and basically says, paint me a picture. Now, if you take the paints and throw them against the wall instead of on the canvas, okay, that's where the permissive will comes in. But to me, the word of God is uh, the expression of God's permissive will, God's permiss- uh, uh, preceptive will. If I say something stupid, stop me, okay? The word of God is what God wants us to do. It's his moral purpose for us to do. Uh, God's permissive will is what he permits us to do even when it violates his preceptive will. It's like throwing our paints on the wall instead of keeping them on the canvas. And then God's directive will are the specific things he wants us to do that in some cases only we can do. So let me illustrate it this way. Uh, that oval is that piece of canvas that Michael's supposed to be painting on or that Lendl's supposed to be painting on or that Katie Davis supposed to be painting on. There's some things, Katie, you can do uh, that nobody else in the world can do. Okay, Nobody else can be uh, Lloyd's world-class wife but you, you know, and keep it up, okay? So... Uh, we go to God's word to know what he wants us to do in that sense. Uh, when we are off the reservation, when we're throwing our paints against the wall off the canvas, that's God's permissive will. I'm calling that the wall. And then even inside the safety of obeying uh, the word of God as a fruit of our salvation, God wants Sue to do stuff that he doesn't call me to do. He wants me to do things he doesn't call her to do. And it takes wisdom to discern and follow up uh, God's directive will for your life. But I'd say if you're confused about what it is, just look at your responsibilities based on the preceptive will and then really focus on doing those well. 
and you'll move toward the center of God's purpose for you. So, uh, final exam question. In verse 15, uh, we have the principle for such is the will of God, a Savannah Bauer submitting to uh, human authority, even driving 30 between, you know, uh, Country Club and Plato and uh, North Fifth and Plato, right? Uh, this is the will of God. Uh, what kind of, which, which aspect of the will of God is that? Is it the sovereign will of God? Yeah, because everything happens sovereign will of God. Uh, is it the moral, preceptive, permissive, or directive will of God? I think it's the preceptive will of God and ultimately part of the directive will of God. But if you drive 65 through that stretch, is that the preceptive will of God? Permissive will of God? Yeah. Sovereign will of God? Yeah. Uh, he permits that, but you're... You're, you're, you're going to have the problem with, with the judge. Not, God didn't make you do that. You just chose to do that. Okay. Command principle application. Believers are to employ our liberty to serve God and others. Uh, but, that's not right. Man, the second week in a row, I blew my punchline here. Believers are to employ our liberty to serve God and others. Uh, not just believers, but unbelievers. Okay, Not just people who are nice, but even the nasty people out there. And there are a few out there in the world, right? Look at verse 16 and 17. Act as free people. Now, that's not talking about just adult males. So that's Kitty as much as uh, as uh, Eric. Act as free people, as believers. But don't use your freedom as a covering for evil or as just a pretext to push your own preferences all the time. But use it as bond slaves of God. To sum up, honor everybody. Everybody's got the image of God in them, marred, scarred, but still there. Love the brotherhood in a special way, especially in your local church. Cling, cling there and hang in there with your local church. Respect God and live consistently to please him, and that includes honoring the king, right? So believers are to employ our, our liberty to honor and serve God and others, both believers and unbelievers in the church and in the world. Uh, now, obviously, our fellow believers have a special place in our heart, in part because we know and have believed in the gospel, you know, because Christ died for our sins. We don't have to die in our sins, but he's not dead anymore. And the resin, risen, risen, <laughs> it's Jerry Lewis trying to preach the resurrection. Uh, the risen Christ is the issue and the issue of eternal life. Now look back at 16 and 17. You know, we talked about uh, submission. It's placing under. It's an expression of strength. It's freely chosen. Can't be forced. You can coerce people to do all kinds of things, but... Uh, submission is something, Jeff, only you can give to God. If God forces you to do it, and he's not going to force you to do it. It's not really submission. But how does that work exactly? How is it possible for us to be free and then be commanded to submit, Kitty? Think about that. How could God say we're free spiritually but command us to submit to people like Tiberius? Well, let me ask you a question. Uh, just make a point first. So-called freedom without any authority is just chaos and anarchy. And that's kind of what the far left is wanting right now. They, they, they have, they're on a moral crusade to bring down the, the structures and the things that have made America great from a moral, uh, civil, body politic point of view. And they're convinced they're right. They're more zealous than your average Jehovah's Witness on steroids. And, uh, you know, religious zealots are dangerous. And you heard it from this pulpit first. But... Uh, Freedom isn't a license to sin or promote yourself. Let me ask you a question. Watch. Clay, are you free to drive a... Not not you personally, but how old are you now? 16? Have you gotten your driver's license yet? Okay. When are you going to get it? Yeah, okay. Well, let me ask you this. 
since you're about to get a driver's license sometime soon. Now, by the way, the way I did that was we bought them a safe car, but they had to pay for the insurance. Have you guys talked about that yet? I felt like that was fair, you know. But the weird thing about that is the car we bought for Jamie before he went to college, for the car we bought for Jamie before he went to college, I had to buy back from Jamie after he finished college. And that wasn't Jamie telling me that. That was his mother telling me that. <laughs> I call that mom's math. I said, hold it. Hold, no, I said, hold it now. I, you know, I said, we bought the car for, for him. Now you want me to buy it back from him? I said, yeah. I said, you're kidding. No, you're serious. She was serious, you know. And he, you know, he, he crammed a bachelor's and a master's into five years accounting. And he actually got his master's degree the night before he gave it, got his bachelor's degree, the way they passed the stuff out, which we thought was funny. But, uh, he's an accountant, so he's a smart kid. And I said, Hey, Jamie, uh, I gotta buy, I need your car. Yeah, he, I know, you got, you got the car. I said, but mom wants me to pay you for it. And after he stopped laughing, I was able to negotiate a really good deal. Uh, which I which I did, uh, but uh, she didn't know that. But uh, yeah, so that, see, see, I, I honored my wife and my son, and the whole thing it was all great. But so you know what? Since you don't have a driver's license yet, I'm not going to rub it in. But David, let me ask you, David Demerson, uh, are are you and many other people free to drive a car in the United States anywhere you want to? Pretty much. I mean, Area 51, no, and some you know right through the White House screen, no, but. Generally, we're free to drive a car anywhere. You can you can drive cross country if you want to with your brand new Beamer if you want to. You're going to rip the oil pan off, you know, but you're free to do it. So we're free to drive cars in the United States. There's some countries you can't afford a car. There's some countries you can't drive very many places. In China, North Korea, you can't get a car. And if you had a car, you can't drive anywhere you want to. The government has to tell you where you can drive. But yeah, we're free to drive a car. But even here in the United States, where we have that kind of freedom, we don't have the freedom to blow through a red light, do we? Or stop sign, or to drive 65 on that stretch where James and I are supposed to drive 30. We don't have the, we don't have the freedom to do that. See, we're free, but we have constraints that call for submission. And that's the kind of thing, we see that in all kinds of different areas of life, so don't act like that is something that's totally beyond the pale. So, submission is a, a, is a, not forced, it can't be coerced, it's an expression of strength, and it's especially important in certain areas of Scripture that are specifically reinforced by perceptive statements, okay? Precepts, commands. Christians are to submit to God the Father and His will. Hebrews 12, James 4. Specifically, we are to submit to Christ our Savior. Ephesians 5.24. We are also told, and this is right before he tells wives to submit to their husbands, we are to submit each all of us are to submit to one another in the local church. That means not even Dale gets everything he wants around here, much less the pastor. Okay, David Emerson's an elder. He doesn't get everything he wants around here. Uh, we're just a group of super servants that try to structure things so that God can do some things, and sometimes uh, he does great things, and sometimes it doesn't work. We have to restructure it or get different uh, things going on there. But, uh, yeah, that's especially important. First uh, Peter 5.5. 5. One of my favorite statements there in the whole book. Have you read it yet? It says, even Steve Skinner is supposed to submit to the elders of the local church. Now, does that mean if we're commanding you to go rob our liquor store so we can increase our uh, our uh, funding around here, you're going to go do that because the elders tell you to do that? You always submit to human authority until or unless it's a direct sin to obey human authority. That's just the 
the assumption there. So when wives are told to submit their husbands, we're not talking about husbands that are off the reservation that are you know, employing the sin or you know the idea that uh, somebody could physically abuse a spouse and this typically is the male doing it to the female happens the other way around sometimes. Uh, it's just absurd. You're not you're not forced to put up with that. That, that would be ridiculous. Uh, Christian employees are supposed to submit to their employers, and today we're looking at one of several passages in the New Testament that say that Christians, despite our freedom in Christ, are to submit to human authority figures and human authority structures, even if they're not all Christian, and quite often they aren't. So let me close like this. When you hear the word submission, you hear you think of something that's weak and uh, you know that shows uh, a lack of just t- timidity, and you have to grovel and you have to give up your autonomy as an individual, your self-respect. That's not the meaning of the word of all, at all. It's actually a, an idea that uh, we freely, for the Lord's sake, submit to President Clinton or to President Trump or whoever the president is, right? Uh, to the mayor, whether we vote for him or not. This idea that if I didn't vote for him, uh, they're not, you know, legitimate anymore. That, that's not the way you run a republic. And we're not a democracy. We're a republic. And, uh, as, you know, after the Constitutional Convention, somebody bumped into Ben Franklin and said, Mr. Franklin, what have you got for us? And he famously said, a republic, if you can keep it. And they called it an experiment because they realized it's a very fragile thing. They weren't sure it would last 242 years, but it has, you know, uh, up to now. This won't help, but I'm going to do it anyway, right? So Christian submission is an expression of strength. It must be freely given. If you're just uh, uh, with grim resignation putting up with something, that's not Christian submission. That's And that when you're vibrating, when you're doing the right thing, you got to do the right thing the right way for the right reasons, right? And quite often a lot of us, uh, are not real rebellious, but a lot of times we may comply very reluctantly and act like we're doing God and our boss a huge favor. And that's not true Christian submission that's going to allow people to see Christ in us. They're going to see Pharisees in us when we do that, for sure. And it's it's an important part of our Christian life. So bottom line, the kingdom of God doesn't expand by coercion and force, but by loving persuasion and the power of positive action, including us submitting uh, to our human government, whether they're believers or not. Uh, this happens as we live out our faith, not just at church services on Sundays and Wednesdays, but out in the real world, not just around believers, but unbelievers, uh, to and for the glory of God. And as we live that kind of lifestyle, we can have a powerful impact on our culture. And that's what it's going to take. It's not going to be uh, electing the right people. It's going to change the uh, culture cultural structure of this country is going to be a national revival that God may be pleased to initiate if more of us get with the program and apply these kind of principles. So let's have a word of prayer. Father, it's hard for us to think about this whole concept about submitting to human government without thinking of really egregious things uh, the federal or sometimes the state government has decided or that they've supported or promoted. And so we need a lot of wisdom, Lord, to, to know how to do that perfect balance of uh, uh, submitting to Caesar where it's appropriate, but always submitting to you. And so please give us the, the wisdom to know how what that looks like in our experience. But help us to realize that when we are submitting, it should be something that we freely give, and it's not something that we grimly resign ourselves to, but we do it in a positive way, 
so that people can see the Christ in us. And we think of him submitting to the kangaroo courts, basically six different ridiculous trials under all kinds of illegal, uh, irresponsible circumstances, and then walking to that cross, his submission to get there to do the ultimate good. So help us to remember sometimes when we do have to submit to things that seem clunky, like driving 30 miles an hour on a road that could easily support 40 or 45 uh, that we've got to do it for the right reason. I pray the Holy Spirit within us would prick us when we're doing the right thing the wrong way in that kind of area. Uh, again, help each one of us to see how this relates to us, like right now and into the next week, and help this reinforce our commitment to honor you by submitting to uh, those who are over us in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.